Good evening and welcome to the Fred Paul Show on ADH-TV. Well, as they used to tell us, every day, no one is safe. And we want to make sure that everyone understands that no one's safe till everyone's safe. No one is 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 safe. Nobody's safe. No one is safe. Nobody is safe. Oh, no one is safe, all right. But it's what we are not safe from that they aren't telling us. As we knew, as early as March 2020, 99.5% of us were actually, actually were safe from COVID. And the vulnerable 0.5% were not random. They were elderly or had other health problems. The whole pandemic, if you could even call it that, could have been handled calmly and with a minimum of disruption to our lives. But instead, as if taking orders from the same globalist bosses, politicians around the world, regardless of their previous ideological differences, joined as one to redefine the role of government in a liberal democracy. And that role was to rack up trillions of dollars of debt, in, in, intimidate the citizenry into submission and shut down anybody exercising that troublesome but quaint old notion of free speech. Six months ago, soon after Twitter was taken over by new owner Elon Musk, a handful of the world's best journalists, all of them notably like, notably like us here at ADH from outside the legacy media, published the Twitter files exposing the collusion between big government and big tech to shut down free speech. Now, one of Australia's best senators, Alex Antich from South Australia, has done the same. Through freedom of information, Antich has learned that the Department of Home Affairs, which was established to deal with terrorism threats, used its, quote, backdoor arrangement with social media companies, had intervened or censored social media posts on 4,213 occasions in Australia during the pandemic. That is how dystopian Australia has become. A member of the Australian Senate needs to resort to freedom of information to find out why a secretive government department is telling people what they can and cannot say on Facebook and Twitter. It's like Chris Bowen demanding to know why his Tesla won't recharge in the middle of a blackout. The official enthusiasm for a debate about what was arguably the worst policy disaster in Australian history has only just begun and we have only just started learning the details of what went wrong, as my next two guests will confirm. Well, to discuss all that, let's bring in Dr. Jayanti Kunadasan, who was fired from her job for not being vaccinated and then investigated by the Australian Health Practitioners Regulation Agency. Doctor, welcome to the show. Hi, Fred. Thank you for having me. Now, Dr. Kunadasan, where were you working when you were fired for being unvaccinated? 
So I, I'm an anesthetist and perioperative physician. So I was working in regional Victoria. Obviously, uh, goes without saying, I turned up for work, um, you know, in the, uh, at every point during the pandemic, even when they had no N95 mask and stuff. So in regional Victoria. And what I wanted was a risk assessment because for me at that point, I was very concerned about the ethical egress I thought the medical profession was doing in saying, we, we you know, we should suppress people's rights and stuff. And I was, they were also very strong at the time of my firing in October 2021 to December 2021. There were a lot of strong signals of concern, which quite sadly have turned out to be uh, data on adverse events. So um, I repeatedly asked my previous employer for a risk assessment. I got fired. And then, um, you know, I had to go through that trauma and shock. And then I joined the Australian Medical Professional Society because if you think about it, if you're a healthcare practitioner, very upset about the ethical egress that we've all been forced to uh, as a profession, you really had no home to go. So the Australian Medical Professional Society is a non-political union formed pretty much as a response to the pandemic for doctors and other healthcare professionals as well. And that part of that, so this was somewhere I already started speaking out um, sometime in May, but in August 2022, I was speaking in front of the um, State Library in Victoria. And I pretty much said, uh, what was on my mind at that time was that Ty D had just come out pretty much around that time talking about um, his um, his distress. Like, I mean, I was distressed listening to his story, how he had to go to five different neurologists and they wouldn't tell him publicly what was the matter with him. And uh, they said that their license was threatened. Sorry, can, so you just, I, can you just explain who Ty D is? Ty D is a DJ. Yeah. So he's a young gentleman who's a DJ who took the Moderna vaccine. I, I'm not really sure which one he took, but I think it's Moderna. And he had neurological issues. And because of that, he was seeking help from neurologists. And he went to five different neuro neurologists who were privately telling him it was, the, it was uh, probably related to vaccination, but they wouldn't say it out publicly. And I, for me, that was what I had on my mind when I made the speech in front of the State Library of Victoria. I was very distressed uh, at the state of the medical profession. And and was, I this much a, said, was this a public uh, protest event in front in front yes, of the State yes, Library? How many protest, how many yes. people were there? Was it was it heavily policed? What happened? So um, by that time, I think we were allowed to protest. So it wasn't heavily policed. They were around for crowd control. And it wasn't the biggest crowd as well. It was a reasonable crowd. Um, and if you think about it, like as doctors who've been, uh, and I, I refer to it today in the Spectator article that was just published, if you dissented from what was the overriding narrative the official narrative it was you were very cruelly um uh, you know your treatment was very cruel so we had no platform to talk like we couldn't really you know publish in medical journals not and um you know doc, we, i wasn't when i was fired part of my condition of being fired was that i couldn't go back into the building Obviously now, you know, I'm um, um, I, I'm only to access healthcare, but not to see my former colleagues. So you can't really talk to your former colleagues. Um, so we used whatever platform we had, and we were addressing public protest, which was a legal activity. 
And I basically said for the medical profession, it's very dishonorable for us to uh, not be able to tell the patient what we think harms them. Our overriding principle is first do no harm. So, you know, it, it, how do you practice medicine honorably if you think something harms a patient and you can't say it publicly? Well, that's and, a very good question. Now, so when did, the, when did the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency get involved? So they, uh, I got a notification of investigation into my conduct in November 2022. So this has been going on for about six months and I've been quiet about it. And it's been a to and fro uh, because my, my crime was dissemination of anti-COVID-19 vaccine information. Now, so, when you say um, crime, sorry, when you say crime, it, on, on, can you elaborate on that? You, you weren't breaking the law. You were just... Um, contravening com commandments made by APRA, weren't you? Is that right? So there was a 9th of May 2021 uh, basically statement saying, um, you know, if you, you basically thou shalt not criticize vaccination. I'm paraphrasing it. That <laughs> You're paraphrasing it very well, yes. It did come down from the mountain, that's true. Carry on. Yes. Um, and um, you know, that statement is uh, available online and anybody can check it. But it, it was basically that you shouldn't criticize it. And if you did, there can be, um, you know, investigations into your conduct. And you could lose and your license. Yes, yes, definitely. You could lose your license. So, um, you know, now I'm a, I was a, like when I first got fired, I had a lot of shame over over being fired over that. And then. You think to yourself, now I'm being investigated, so I must be really, really dangerous. Um, but what happened was that um, it was, you know, I made a speech where I didn't mention the word vaccine. And I was saying it was not honorable for the medical profession to be uh, not able to tell their patients what, in their opinion, based on training, is harming them. And I also made a plea about, I was thinking of my training and I was really anguished over what we were doing to junior doctors. Like what sort of, when I was training, I felt I could always question, I could always bring my evidence and have challenged my, my consultants. And what are we doing to junior doctors? Like what are we doing to the next generation of doctors? I don't know how they feel. Like, that's, you a know, very, and just, that's a very yeah. good question. So you said there was six months of toing and froing between you and the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency. Can you just briefly describe what that toing and froing was like? Was it like, was it like talking to uh, George Orwell perhaps? Well, um, so you get a you get a, um, a letter saying you're being, uh, you know, investigated in your conduct. And that itself is very distressing because if you think about it, like I'm a, you know, I've already, my job's been taken away. So now I'm being investigated. So it's a very distressing um, experience. And then I was very lucky that I'm a member of the Australian Profe Mem uh, Medical Professional Society and they are willing to help me in the stand to practice medicine ethically. That's all I'm asking for. And pretty much they, um, they helped me, they crafted a letter for me on my behalf. I, I, uh, you know, there was a bit of doing throwing. So we sent it to them and said, I've nothing to really answer for. If you want to look into me for professional misconduct, there's no patience involved because I'm addressing a public statement. I'm not having a one-to-one interaction with a patient 
And um, so, you know, then they they contact they told me they were contacting my previous employer, and and so it was a to and fro, and then. Further investigations were, they collected a bit more of public statements that I made. So one of them was an invest, um, we, the Australian Medical Professional Society organized the first medical conference in Australia, openly talking about effective treatment of COVID, addressing strategies. And so we did that in um, August last year. So one part of it was we actually were really um, privileged and honored to be able to get um, Dr. Naomi Wolf and Amy Kelly present on us on what was in the Pfizer documents analysis. So all I did was introduce Dr. Naomi Wolf and Amy Kelly. That's all I did. And then they sent me a speech that I made introducing them and, and I had to comment and think. And I'm like, you know, I thought it was a good speech. I mean, well, let's just cut to this week yeah. then, Doctor. That, well, last week, I should say, APRA, out of the blue, dropped its investigation. Did they say why? Yes. So basically what happened after I got the second lot of letters, you know, with commentary of, uh, about my previous speeches, we sent a really strong letter back. And pretty much um, what we said is, again, I have not, and that letter is publicly available. I pretty much said, I have nothing to answer for. If you're going to uh, accuse me of anti-COVID-19 vaccine information, here's more information. I've been involved in some publications. And I also asked for if due diligence has been done onto my, my, anon my confidential notifier. Um, if you think about it, I made a speech. I didn't mention vaccines. I'm talking about the honor of the medical profession and how we train junior doctors, and I'm being investigated. Um, I now, would when think you say confidential would... uh, notifier, you're referring to the person who complained about you to APRA. Have, have, have they yes. identified who that person was? So, no, but I asked APRA if due diligence has been done on my confidential notifier. And all the extra information, including my publications, I asked APRA to give it to the medical board as well as my confidential notifier so that they can be educated on some of my publications. But sorry to, um, sorry to interrupt, how do you feel no. about being dobbed in by an anonymous person who is now giving you all, or has given you all this grief? Should anonymous people have that much power? And that is the that is my biggest point. Like, who is this person? I want I I think I have a right to know who my accuser is, and I don't understand why the medical profession uh, doesn't have the right to know who the accuser is. And as I said, and I reiterate, the um, APRA has closed the case against me because there's basically no case to answer, and they've informed my confidential notifier. I don't know who that is. And this person has tried to take away my medical license, something that I worked really hard for. That's, it's, it's frightening. Did you ever think something like this could ever happen in Australia? No, no, not at all. And as I said, um, what part of me wanting to speak out is that Doctors, I, I would hope that at least about 20% of doctors who feel the way I do, that we have to apply common sense, med medical ethical principles. And how many other doctors in Australia have been the target of such spurious investigations based on such shaky accusations? Indeed. And that is part of my reason for speaking out. 
Well, Jayanti, you How many people have silence? Indeed. Well, they won't be silenced here on ADH TV, I can tell you that. Now, uh, Jayanti, you want an open debate about this topic. Do you think it, how dangerous would it be to not have an open debate about what happened during COVID now? Well, it's the, the danger, like, so we, we penned the, uh, the executive of AMS, we penned an, uh, um, an article for the um, Australian spectator basically saying it's high time Australian doctors debated each other openly. And we've run into the problems that we've had uh, or if you think about it, if all the public health response was to prevent hospitalization and death, you have excess death in Australia. The, the, the censorship that we've had, the fear that has been put into medical professionals has stopped this process. And we need to get back to a situation where doctors can debate each other openly without fear. And that is the only way we'll progress. That's the best way to get the best ideas so we can get through all the problems um, that we've seen. So as much as it's scary, because obviously some people who made certain decisions will, will do a lot of things to prevent accountability for those decisions, ultimately, in the end, it's the health of the population that suffers. It's, it's everybody that suffers if we're not able to have a forum where people can debate safely. I wanted a risk assessment, which was my right under workplace law. I was fired. And so that that intention, that firing was meant to silence any debate in the workplace. So I'm pretty sure there's not much debate happening because they will always have that picture. Anyone who dissented got shown the door. And that is not, a, not healthy in a democracy and is definitely not healthy for your health. It's not healthy for the culture either. Now, the Australian Medical Practitioner Society is bringing out Dr. Asim Malhotra, who uh, a lot of viewers will know. He's a British doctor whose father died from a heart condition soon after uh, receiving the vaccine. And, and, and uh, um, Malhotra had been one of the spokespeople in favour of the vaccine uh, previously. Now, what will he be bringing to the debate in Australia? Well, he's a, we are so thankful that he's able to come. And what we're doing is that we, he's a, someone who has changed his mind. So um, at the end of the day in medicine, like I'm an anaesthetist, so, you know, we instantly, we give something, something happens instantaneously. But with every medical intervention, you, you need to assess the success of that intervention. At this point, healthcare practitioners themselves have had three doses basically to keep their jobs. The first question is what is what metrics of success are you judging this intervention by? So Dr. Asim Malhotra has been through that journey and he's had to revisit a lot of things that he has held before and now he's changed his mind. So he's calling for a suspension of COVID-19 vaccinations in uh, along with us in this country pending a full investigation. So it is to uh, encourage healthcare practitioners. You, At the very least, we hope you're having questions. Don't be dissuaded by your union affiliation. This events, there are some healthcare practitioner events in Brisbane, Melbourne and Sydney mainly for healthcare practitioners to be able to have a frank and open debate, 
when we should be able to go back to what it was like pre-COVID, where we could discuss these things, where we didn't feel the long arm of the state or whatever powers that be behind and, and, and that is shaping the debate. And that's what he's mainly bringing. And we are going to, obviously, uh, Queensland, Victoria, New South Wales, South Australia, and and, and hopefully uh, other states as well. So there'll be plenty of opportunity for interaction. Go to the amps.redunion.com.au website, secure your ticket. If you're a healthcare practitioner, you're more than welcome. It is a journey. And, you know, the, the, the first part of it, starts with questions and you don't get that if you're not in a in a, in an environment that is open that enables you to have a frank and open discussion indeed and i'd add also that you don't need to be a member of the medical profession to have an interest in this those mandates still apply in all sorts of industries and uh, it's high time they were lifted there are thousands and thousands of australians whose lives are still being affected by these mandates and they have to be lifted immediately. Dr. Jayanti Kunadasan, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much, Fred. Thank you for the opportunity to speak today. Thank you. That's Dr. Jayanti Kunadasan from Victoria and she's a prominent proponent of a more open debate about what went wrong during the COVID lockdown and vaccine mandates. Well, now let's bring in John Ruddick, who is of the Australian Libertarian Party, previously known as the Liberal Democrats, and he's just he's joining us from his office at New South Wales Parliament House, where he where he is enjoying one of his first uh, working days as a politician. John, welcome to the show. Good to see you, Fred. Thanks for having me. John, you're one of the few politicians in Australia calling for a royal commission into the COVID catastrophe, if I can use that word. How are things coming along? What do you think will happen? Are you, uh, do you think you'll ever get a, an, an inquiry up? Well, I've got, I've got a, another po politician in my corner who is also supportive or had appeared to be supportive until a week ago. That other politician's name is uh, Anthony Albanese. He has said on five occasions that I count, and probably more, I haven't even looked that hard, but it didn't take too much of a Google search to find that on five occasions, Anthony Albanese, as an opposition leader and as Prime Minister, has emphatically said, Fred, that Australia, of course, will have to have a Royal Commission into COVID. Now, the case is more than compelling. Uh, we had a massive infringement on our ancient civil liberties, and we spent at least $300 billion dollars uh, in a vain attempt to stop the masses catching a virus, but they did catch inflation. So, yes, we obviously need to have a supreme inquiry, and that, of course, is a royal commission. Well, we tried to prevent them catching a virus, as if that could ever happen. I mean, one of the things this thing will need to, if there is an inquiry, it will need to inquire into how politicians ever thought they could stop a virus. I mean, talk about authoritarian. They think they can... They can uh, command medicine. Well, you remember when uh, Dan Andrews, who was the worst culprit, when he would go around saying he would boast of a, a donut day, which means that there was zero new cases of COVID in Victoria on that day. Okay, now it was, it was all nonsense. Okay, of course, I mean, that, that was because he's, he cooped everybody up at home, okay, and had the police out on the streets to stop humans interacting with each other. Now, lockdowns do work if your objective is to stop people catching the virus. But of course, lockdowns are unsustainable and extremely inhumane. And the bottom line is uh, COVID wasn't Ebola. COVID was a 
worse than usual version of the flu and nothing more than that. And, and these politicians wanted to be our saviours and they forced vaccines on people. But the really interesting thing about this COVID Royal Commission, Fred, is, is that Albo has been so enthusiastic about it and so supportive of it up until recently. So they recently brought out the budget and somebody worked out, well, there's no provision. A Royal Commission cost about $100 bucks. Uh, there was no provision in the recent budget about funding a Royal Commission. Somebody asked him last week, well, when will we have the Royal Commission? There's, there's no funding, uh, Mr Prime Minister. And, and Albo very sheepishly said, well, well, you know, let's wait till COVID's over. Well, you know, somebody's got to update the boss in the Prime Minister's office, Fred, because the good news is COVID is over. And it's not just you and me saying it. The World Health Organisation said it. So uh, let bring on the COVID Royal Commission. There's no, there's no provision either for vaccine injury compensation, should there be? Well, absolutely. And that's, that's one of the major things that we actually want examined in the COVID Royal Commission is the full extent of the vaccine injuries. Now, normally when a new vaccine comes out and there's a, just a very, very, very small number of uh, injuries, they, they halt the rollout. Okay. Now, on this occasion, it's difficult to quantify how many people have been injured by the COVID vax. Uh, now, anecdotally, it appears to be uh, 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 alarmingly high. But we need to have a really proper inquiry. Now, the thing is that the mainstream media has got no interest in this, who we normally rely upon to, to, to hold governments to account, uh, because the, the, the mainstream media were, you know, fueling the COVID hysteria. And, and the Liberal Party uh, would, would normally, I mean, Albo, if he doesn't go ahead with the Royal Commission, has broken a promise, uh, a very emphatic promise. And normally the opposition would say, hey, there's, the Prime Minister has broken a promise. Well, the Liberal Party is, is, is uh, like, like, like Labor, is trying, to, is trying to just kick the can down the road, uh, you know, um, sweep it under the carpet, because the Liberal Party doesn't want any scrutiny on this either. But we absolutely have to have one, and we will have one at some point, I'm certain of that. The longer they delay it, uh, the more that the average Joe Blow out there is going to, the fog of the COVID hysteria is going to lift, and the more that we'll be able to have a, a, a fair and impartial inquiry. Well, the fog lifted significantly this morning when Alex Antich published some freedom of information information about uh, the way the government colluded with big tech to suppress debate. Now we all know that that's that we all know that debate was significantly suppressed during the event. But now that it's over, as the World Health Organization has reminded us, shouldn't debate be the most important thing now? I mean. What, why are we delaying discussing this? It was a serious compromise on our, on our birthright of freedom of speech and freedom of association and freedom to work and freedom to go to school. Why aren't we now debating it? It's the most important issue in Australia today. Uh, well, these will be questions for the Royal Commissioner, but my humble view is, is that uh, the government, every single decision they made on COVID was uh, reprehensible. There was, there was an international outlier called Sweden. Now, we've always, th uh, you, you and I have grown up, Fred, and we've always heard lefties say Sweden is the ideal country. It's a democracy. They've got high taxes. It's a regulated economy. They've got lots of welfare. It's the perfect economy. That's the perfect country. Okay, great. Well, uh, during COVID, uh, Sweden shocked the world. But Sweden bucked the trend. Sweden said we are not going to lock down. The government said that they recommend masks, but they certainly didn't make them mandatory. And now Sweden has, uh, in Western Europe, 
I think, the lowest uh, COVID fatality rate. So, and, and Sweden was mocked. Josh Frydenberg, when he was the treasurer, and, you know, blowing away our, our kids' inheritance and loading them up with all this debt, he said, oh, we don't want to be like Sweden. We don't want to be like Sweden. No, Josh, we do want to be like Sweden. <laughs> we, want to, we want to work out why, uh, why Sweden was disparaged so badly when they very courageously went against uh, the trend. Now, they were ahead of Ron DeSantis. Now, Ron DeSantis was a COVID hero as well. I like Trump, but DeSantis was, was, was better than Trump on this issue, a very important issue. But Sweden was even better. From the very beginning, they did lock down. They did lock down in, 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 in Florida for, I think, about half a year. Well, I look forward to you doing uh, as close as you can to uh, Ron DeSantis's performance in Florida by at least getting inquiry up in New South Wales. Let's talk about state politics. And I know this is a different state to yours. Let's talk about Victoria. The Liberal Party is in a lot of trouble after, uh, after uh, expelling Moira Deeming from the Parliamentary Party. Now, I think that's fairly emblematic of the way the Liberal Party is at state level around the country. Do you think the Liberal Party is in, uh, terminal, uh, is in terminal trouble here or can they turn it around? Well, coincidentally, I just met Maura Deeming for the first time in my life about 15 minutes ago, which was a great honour. And I watched her maiden speech last week and I thought to myself, why hasn't anybody sent this to me earlier? It was a terrific maiden speech with a lot of... What's lacking in the world today in 2023, Fred, is courage. More than anything else, it's courage. Now, with the Liberal Party, look, it has been a very successful political party. It has had its uh, ups and downs in the past, but it's always bounced back. In the past, there was always, we would always think, you know, when it was floundering, we could say, well, maybe John Howard will become the, the leader or maybe Tony Abbott will become the leader. There is nobody on the horizon with the Liberal Party. And that's because the factions have ruthlessly prevented ideological people contesting pre-selections. So now we just have fluffy middle of the roaders. And now that is, uh, you know, that is why, that is a recipe for a party imploding. Political parties are not forever. Are they you do have an expiry date. Indeed. So if you, if, you, if you are saying that the Liberal Party is imploding, and uh, I, for the sake of the nation, I hope it's not. But if it is, what's the, what, what's the overflow for the Libertarian Party? Are you getting lots of inquiries from disgruntled Liberal rank and file? Well, look, we're having, we're, we're, we are enjoying a, 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 a renewal of uh, membership and, and there are people coming over from many other political parties, but I would say predominantly from the Liberal Party. Uh, look, I think that the whole COVID exercise, the whole COVID era, has really made the ground fertile for the libertarian message. And we really believe that the libertarian message transcends the, tra the traditional left-right spectrum. Okay, we, we, so the right-wing parties want to come to power so they can do right-wing things. Left-wing parties want to come to power so they can do left-wing things. The libertarian basically says, look, we don't trust any of them. We know that government, big government is, is mankind's greatest scourge. Okay, it's worse than, worse than droughts, worse than pandemics. Okay, what, what, what all the atrocities, the wars and the genocides were always caused by politicians, okay? And so what we have to, to minimise this threat, these great threats, what we actually need is a much, much smaller government. And that's what the libertarian uh, message is all about. Now, uh, you know, I, I think it, it, most people in Australia don't know what libertarianism means. And I'm certainly hoping that I can use my time in Parliament to help promote that message, because when a lot of people hear about it, 
a lot of them, people say, yeah, well, that's what I believe. Well, are there religious implications in the Libertarian Party? Here's, here's your chance to explain it. What's the foundation for it? Well, we do have, look, we are not a libertine party, okay, mm. and we yep. do have a lot of church-going uh, people in our party, but we, have, we, do, we do have libertines as well. We're a very broad-based party. Uh, so we really, it's not so much about specific policies, it's about reducing the, the reach of the state into individuals' lives, okay? So we would be, be believing, you know, in, in radically, a radically free speech uh, position, a radically, uh, you know, freedom of, to exercise religion. Now, people say that uh, our critics will say that we are a libertine party because we're pro-cannabis. Now, that is not true. Uh, we do believe, it's not as though we want people to take cannabis, what we are saying, that is just a byproduct of our view, which is that the government should not interfere in people's lives. And if people want to make a decision to smoke cannabis like Elon Musk does and other people, Joe Rogan, uh, if they want to make that decision, then that is their decision. So we are neutral on whether uh, cannabis is good or bad for people, what we, but we are against the state bossing people around. And we believe that we, we have more faith in individuals to make the right decision for themselves. Well, yeah, with rights come responsibilities. I think that's the short way of putting it, isn't it? Yes, yes. We, we think, look, and if people have uh, a, a much greater level of personal freedom because the government doesn't boss them around, inevitably lots of people will make mistakes. But that's how they learn. Rather than living in a regulated society, it's better for people to make a few mistakes, pick themselves up, up, dust themselves off and get on and improve their lives without having the nanny state bossing them around. Well, that's a so refreshing... We, we believe that all... That, that, that's a very refreshing message because we live at a time when people assume the responsibility of government is to, is to keep them safe, not keep them free, as, as the name of your party implies. But, John, how do you build a party? I mean, essentially, you are trying to build a party from a very low base. How do you build it without falling into the trap of getting vested interests embedded into the rank and file? How do you avoid that? Look, it's a very good question. There is a debate in our party about whether we want to be growing to become a party of government or whether we want to be the, um, you know, for lack of a better word, the right-wing version of the Greens. Now, the Greens, putting aside their policies, have been extremely successful politically and they've got 10% of the country in their back pocket and they've done that with a purist message, okay, and, with, and they've dragged the Labor Party to the left and in the process, they've dragged the Liberal Party to the left. The Greens are, you know, now, now, now the question for us is, that should the Libertarian Party or the Liberal Democrats, should we aim to be no more than a 10% party and just remain the purest party and accept that in any Western democracy, there is going to be a party on the right, which is the party of government. And that'll sort of come and go and that'll have its ups and downs. And that'll be a party which the careerists uh, you know, the people who want something out of politics for themselves, not the nation, will join. And we accept, some people accept, well, that will always be there. Our job is to keep them on the straight and narrow by, by you, know, uh, you know, taking votes off them, taking seats in Parliament off them from the libertarian wing. Now, others say, look, you know, we should be aiming to be, you know, a, a party of government. So, look, we're, we're about sort of a 3% party at the moment. 
which is not nothing, okay, because we, we barely have any media attention up until recently. And we, we, are, we, we, we think all around the world, the, med, the, the COVID era, a big positive can come out, out of it, which is a, a reappreciation of our ancient hard-fought hard fought, hard fought liberties. I couldn't agree more. Now, speaking of those liberties, I mean, we were, our nation was founded as a, as a uh, convict colony, as you know, but our reputation as a convict colony continues to get boosted. Last week, the New South Wales police tasered a 95-year-old woman in a Cooma old person's home. And now the police commissioner has said she hasn't even watched the footage of it. Now, John, you don't need to go into specific details of this case, but I just want you to comment on what that says about us as a society, that the cops can taser a great-grandmother and nobody in authority seems to, seems to mind. Well, look, it certainly looks bad from the limited information we have. Now, the, now but the, 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 the Bruce Learman story, the, the, the Brittany story saga, you know, when I, I remember when I first read about that, I thought, gee, this sounds absolutely terrible. But what we have learned is that really we should step back and let's have an inquiry and let's uh, understand all the facts. Now, the very few facts we have at the moment is that, you know, a 95-year-old lady, a great-grandmother, was tased. Now, that sounds terrible and it may well be terrible, but there could also be other circumstances involved and so we are better off uh, waiting until those those full facts come out. But now if there is, uh, you know, uh, undeniable police brutality. Well, that certainly needs to be dealt with because we don't want thugs in our police force. But I think, oh, yeah, I, I, my hunch is is that there's more to this. I, it's hard to believe that a police officer would just march in and just sort of taser an old lady unless there was strong grounds for doing so. But who knows? Yeah. All right. And just quickly before you go, you've probably heard that the ABC has walked out today. I know this is a federal issue as well, but uh, I'd love to get your opinion on this. Stan Grant has sensationally said he's walking out of the ABC because of all the racism he copped after the uh, coronation broadcast. And now the ABC announced this afternoon they're walking out in support of him. Now, uh, do you think anyone will notice, John? <laughs> well, look, uh, Stan Grant has had a very, very fortunate life. He's a hardworking guy. He's a well-presented guy. You know, he's been around for a long time. Probably made a lot of money. I find it very hard to believe that he's a he, he's been someone who has suffered from uh, you know racial oppression in this country. I think Australia's been very very good to him. People need to sort of start to be looking uh, on the optimistic side of life. I think I think that the left all around the world today has got this absolute obsession about race. It's very harmful, and uh, and basically, Fred, I don't believe racism exists in Australia. Uh, the only racism is is that we have uh, people who just are so obsessive about race. They just, I don't know where they get it from. They just can't shut up about it. <laughs> Look, we, we, we really are a race-blind society. Uh, they're, they're, yep, I'll say it again. There is no racism in Australia. It's all in uh, Mr Grant's imagination. And, you know, look, he... he he, he, he gets sad because he got some criticism on Twitter about his coronation. Well, I thought what he said about the coronation was absolutely uh, reprehensible. And if he really wants to talk about people being oppressed, why doesn't he talk to some of those people who didn't take the vaccine, the silly COVID vaccine that's appeared to not work, 
Uh, why doesn't he talk to some of them about absolute true horror stories of people who really did get persecuted and many of them are still uh, still can't get a job because they won't take the stupid COVID vaccine. That's the people who that's the people who have been really oppressed in this country in the last few years. Absolutely well said, John Ruddick. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Fred. That's John Ruddock, a member of the New South Wales Legislative Council for the Libertarian Party, formerly known as the Liberal Democrats. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can find me at, at Fred Paul, that's F-R-E-D-P-A-W-L-E, or follow ADH on at A-D-H-T-V-A-U-S. And you can catch all the latest from ADH's rapidly expanding lineup, including Mark Stein, Alan Jones, Lyle Shelton, Alexandra Marshall, Daisy Cousins, David Flint, Nick Cater, and more by going to adh.tv or downloading our app. Or find us wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends, ADH is the new home for common sense commentary. And there's no shortage of things to comment about these days. I'll see you again tomorrow at seven o'clock. Good night.